It doesn't happen often, but sometimes life hands you the keys to your future, a whisper of the possibilities on the wind. Or, in the case of Michaela de Prince, a literal image of her future carried on the breeze and landed on the gate in front of her, a picture of a ballerina. The graceful pose would be attractive to anyone, but to de Prince, who was a young girl orphaned in war-torn Sierra Leone, the image was a calling. This is in Fuego. I was originally born in Sierra Leone, West Africa, in 1995. Um, unfortunately, it was during a bloody civil war there, and because of that, uh, caused my father to be killed um, by the rebels. And because we had no money after he uh, passed away, my mother and I had to move in with my uncle, unfortunately. Um, but also, as well, I had a skin condition called vitiligo. I have a skin condition called vitiligo, and my uncle really didn't like me because of it, and he didn't really want to waste any of his time taking care of me. Um, and he would always try to find different ways to to show my uh, biological mother that I was worthless and I shouldn't be fed or anything. So for her, she was constantly always trying to make sure I got enough food and trying to take care of me. But because of that, she ended up also getting very sick and ended up passing away. Um, so after she passed away, my uncle just decided, you know, he didn't want anything to do with me from the beginning. So he decided to bring me to an orphanage and he just left me there and I never saw him after that. Um, and in the orphanage as well, because of my vitiligo and because of the West African culture, they just assumed vitiligo was the, they called me the devil's child because of the vitiligo. They thought I brought bad luck. They thought if anything bad happened, it was my fault. And so they mistreated me quite a lot in the orphanage. And I felt very sad and very alone and didn't know what future I had. And I, I, I wanted something great for myself because my biological parents always expressed that to me and I believed in myself at a very young age. But being in an orphanage and not having people look out for you, especially the aunties who took care of us, they were local women. And I just, I didn't have anything at the time except uh, my best friend. And she and I were both ranked the least favorite children in the orphanage and her name was Mabinti Suma. And she was number 26. Um, because she was a left-handed, and I was ranked number 27, the least favorite child, because of my vitiligo. Um, so it was it was a horrible situation, and now as an adult, of course, I've forgiven these people for treating me the way they did, because they didn't know the vitiligo meant I just had white spots. I, I wasn't going to cause anything bad to happen to me, so of course I forgive, I've forgiven them. But in that time, just I felt so alone and I had nothing to look forward to except being around my best friend. But of course, you you want to be able to think you have a better life. And I wanted that. Um, and as well in the orphanage, I had a teacher who really believed in me. I was quite smart and I was eager to, to get out in the world. And um, when I found the magazine that blew up onto the orphanage gate, she was able to express to me that it was a ballerina on the cover. And I remember just looking at that magazine and it wasn't, I, I'm sure you've heard my story, but it wasn't the fact that she was wearing a tutu or doing this beautiful, beautiful pose on point. And it was, it was as if you've never, like something that you've seen, a dream, something you would never, ever think you would ever see in your whole entire life. And that photo gave me like 
kind of like butterflies in my stomach and my heart's beating fast and just feeling as if anything was possible. And the fact that this woman looks so happy, that's what really drove me to want to become this ballerina. I wanted to feel and smile the way she did in an effortless way and be, be like her. And so I decided there and then I had to become this woman and I would do anything in order to become her. And for me, I didn't want anybody to take this special thing away from me. And because we were an orphanage and it was very poor in Sierra Leone, I decided to rip off the cover and put it in the only place I could. It's not very pretty, but I put it in my underwear because it was the safest place and I knew no one was going to take it away from me. Um, and when I found out I was going to be adopted, we had to leave our orphanage um, because the rebels were going to bomb it. And I soon later found out I was going to be adopted. And for me, I was I was very excited about it. But as well, I knew my best friend, Mabinti Suma, number 26, was also going to get adopted. And the only thing I cared about was her and becoming this ballerina. So I was a bit torn of whether or not I'm going to lose my best friend. But maybe I'm going to also have this opportunity to become that amazing creature on the cover of the magazine but to my surprise um when i when we finally were able to get on a plane and to meet our american families i found out that mia and i my, my uh, best friend mabinti suma and i would be adopted together um she would become my sister yeah Everything was new to Michaela, an impressionable little girl who only knew what she gleaned from her war-torn surroundings, and the fortuitous discovery of a magazine cover. Obviously, in the eyes of the young, it would make perfect sense that Michaela's adoptive mother would have absolutely everything she might need in her luggage. I remember when we went to the, uh, to the hotel with my new American mother, I assumed, somehow I had this thought that, you know, American mothers, they have everything. They have, she'll note that she should have my tutu in her suitcase. She should know that I should have, that she should have my point shoes and my tiara, everything I needed to become this ballerina. So when I was looking through her suitcase, trying to find all these things that I thought American mothers would have in their suitcase, picking up (laughs) two African children, she didn't have it. Um, So I had to take a lot of courage and show her the most precious thing that was that I've ever had in my whole entire life and I had to show her this photo of the ballerina on the cover of the magazine and she knew right away she understood that I wanted to become a ballerina and she told me when we come to America I would dance and when we got to the U.S. of course I was able to dance but only after I was able to learn um, some English for a few months and then I was able to go and take my very first ballet class, which was not amazing, to be honest. I hated it because <laughs> I was I was very serious. I, I needed to become this woman, and all we did in class was skip around, and I thought this was ridiculous. Why weren't we doing these ballet positions? I've been practicing at home before I came to my very first ballet class, and so I was lucky enough. My mom found a different studio, and they were very excited about how eager I was and how dedicated you could see it in my face um, pretty much all the time of how much I wanted to become this ballerina. And so I was put into a higher level and I was just progressing very fast. And I did have some teachers who really believed in me. But I also had a lot of teachers who just didn't see the point in putting effort and investing in me. And I remember when I was 
eight years old, I was super excited that, or eight or nine, something that super excited to be able to do um, a really, really big role um, in, the, in one of the Nutcrackers I was going to do. And it was Clara or Marie, depending on which version you, you know. And I was practicing and practicing, and I ended up not having the opportunity to perform it because I overheard them saying, yeah, America's not ready for a Black Marie. Michaela came to America and discovered the land of opportunity and freedom had a stipulation, if you looked a certain way. An eager young ballerina received pushback from the very start. The prince would forge ahead. After that, was I even going to make it? Um, but I did have a teacher, um, Maria Lena, at the Rock School, who I remember when I was eight was just always trying to push me to become the best that I could. And when I was a little bit older, around nine, ten, I also again heard uh, one of my teachers said, like I-, I wasn't there, but behind my back, you know, we don't put a lot of effort into black ballerinas because they all end up getting big boobs and big thighs and getting fat. And for me, I, if you see me now and you know me as a person, I have no boobs. <laughs> so <laughs> obviously he was wrong about that, but it, it was very difficult. Cause I just, I just kept getting these people saying, you know, you're not going to make it, you're not going to make it. Um, and it was heartbreaking because this was something that meant so much to me. It's not just like I saw, um, a video of a ballerina, this, this magazine, this, this, um, inspiration and hope was part of my heart. It was everything to me because when you're a little four-year-old in an orphanage with nothing and you find something so precious, you'd have to fight for it. And I just didn't know if I was even going to ever have that dream come true. Um, but I was lucky. My parents believed in me a lot. My siblings believed in me a lot. And I just had so many amazing opportunities and getting to do different competitions and really trying to get out there. Um, and, and when I was 15 years old, I had the opportunity to join the JKO School, American Ballet Theater. I was offered a scholarship uh, because of Youth America Grand Prix. Um, and um, that gave me an opportunity to really know, okay, maybe I can make it. Maybe I can make it in this world. And I started dancing at American Ballet Theater. And I had two incredible directors who who just pushed me and really showed me that I could be more. But of course, there's always that little voice saying, but you know, for the longest time, nobody could see that you would be successful. Um, And it wasn't until I got to see more people like me. um, And that's when I really got to um, realize, okay, maybe I could make it. And that was because of Dance Theater of Harlem. And having the opportunity to work with Arthur Mitchell was really what made me think, okay, yeah, I can prove everybody wrong. That's always been like my mentality is if you say I can't do something, okay, wait, and I'll prove you wrong. That's just how I've always had to be, Uh, especially in the orphanage with the way I was treated. I just always had to not be the devil's child, which is what the aunties always called me. I had to be more than what they said. So that was my drive to, I'm just going to prove you guys all wrong. And I kept thinking that, and I kept thinking that, and it, didn't happen until I finally got a contract with Dance Theater of Harlem when I was 18 years old. Um, and I was the youngest member there. And it was amazing. It was amazing to be surrounded by people who looked like me. It was amazing to feel comfortable in my own skin, to wear brown tights, to not feel like I'm two different people. Because, you know, in classical ballet, Caucasian dancers, they wear pink tights because their upper bodies are 
similar to the pink ties. But it makes them it completes a line for them. But for me, it was cutting me in half, and I just felt on stage that I wasn't myself. I wasn't Michaela. I was two different people. Brown tights. If you're not into ballet and are coming to this fresh, you might think there isn't something all that revolutionary to the notion that a dancer might want to wear whatever makes them comfortable. The prince had to fight for the comfort, to wear tights that not only finished her line, but made her feel like herself. Most importantly, young dancers of color in the audience could now see themselves on stage. All that after the break. Winning season returns at MyBookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means insane props, epic bonuses, and the craziest cross-sport wagers. At MyBookie, winning season means watching live sports and betting live sports all season long. Rejoice. The NFL has returned. That means action-packed Sundays and huge cash prizes. Get in on the action. Use promo code FUEGO and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. Designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Bet with the best this NFL season for your chance to win big. Use promo code FUEGO. That's promo code FUEGO. F-U-E-G-O. And double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today. Only at MyBookie. and Michaela, I was two different people. And so dancing with Dancing in Harlem, it just was like, okay, you know what? I love being in surrounded by beautiful African-American dancers, but I also would like to see if I could have the opportunity to also be in a big classical company and try to, what I say is try to spread more poppies in the field of daffodils. So I, I was the first poppy to join uh, Dutch National Ballet. And then... Just this year, we got another female black ballerina who um, joined the company. And for me, it's just, and I know that with, also with Missy Copeland, with um, uh, Lauren Anderson from Houston Ballet, who's also an amazing role model for me, to so many other black influencers who have been trying to change the ballet world, it's finally changing. And I can see that there are more poppies in this field of daffodils in this uh, white classical art form. And it's, it's small, it's changing, but I want to continue to make it more, more diverse. And I feel that I have that opportunity to do that, which is why I speak out about this, because nobody deserves to feel like they can't be themselves while they're doing something they love so much, you know? Any kind of ballet dancer is going to fight to get to the top. I mean, it's just an arduous uh, type of, of, of talent to, to kind of perfect. But you've yeah, also but been kind of um, fighting against the ideal of what a ballet dancer should look like. And I think it's, yeah. it's, it's very profound. How has, how has the brown tights been um, received, I guess, um, both, both the negative and positive? Because oh. that is, that, oh. that's kind yeah. of a very visual thing for people to see that and be like, oh, I get it. I, I get what, what you're fighting against. Well, to be honest, I it was a very sad moment for me. I remember, uh, well, my 
director here, Ted Branson, he was all up for it. He understood completely how I needed to do this. I needed to feel like myself on stage, but I had another um, person react completely differently when I was getting ready to do um, a principal role and said this was the ugliest thing I've ever seen and I don't understand why you need to wear brown tights when you should be wearing pink tights. And can you imagine, it felt like when those things happen, you feel like a little girl again. You feel like, okay, nothing is going to change. You can you can talk to people about it. You can try to express. You can paint the picture. But if they're not willing to be open-minded and understanding how how you need to complete your line and not be like two different people on stage, it's yeah, it's yeah. It was very horrible to have that feeling as an adult, young adult, um, and it was hard. And I had to keep fighting for it. And also. In September, I had to fight for it again um, with my company because um, Balanchine, they wanted me to wear pink tights on stage. And for me, it, it just does not work. It's 2020 now, 2019 then. But the world is changing and dancers are different colors now. So it has to evolve. It can still stay um, with the old classics. And that's what makes it so beautiful that you're able to tell these old stories. But we're all different colors now. It's not just one color. You know, I think it's just time for people to to see that and to have that change. And I would also love, as a young um, ballerina, four year old little girl, to have to have had the opportunity to have brown tights and brown um, flat shoes to be able to wear in class and really feel that it's okay to be me at a very young age. There is a barrier to low-income families trying to get their children into ballet. The website 538 published an article in 2015 that examined the cost of training for a young dancer. Taking into account things like class tuition, additional fees charged by ballet schools, uh, the kind of tuition and housing you might have for summer programs, point shoes, other ballet attire, the publication estimated it would take in upwards of $100,000 to become a ballerina. Suddenly, it's clear that something as beautiful as ballet is just not designed for everyone. So I, I know that, like you said, it was 2020 and there's still it's predominantly, you know, a, a white um, um, art. H have you seen any change uh, slowly but surely an acceptance? I know you're still getting backlash to, to the brown tights here and there, but do you see... Do you see things changing in the next year, five years, 10 years where, you know, brown tights and having, you know, people of color in, in, in dance will just be something that's just so regular that it, that it's not even questioned? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm definitely hoping. But there's also this there's also this thing as well. Um, ballet is very, very expensive and sometimes it's just impossible for um, for any parent, especially like my family. My parents adopted nine children out of 11, um, and it was a very expensive art to be able to do it. And I'm just, I was very fortunate that my parents were able to pay for it. But even a lot of dancers who I've known when I was younger, who I wish were able to make it, different colors, white, black, Asian, everything, they couldn't make it because of money as well. It's a very expensive art um, and very beautiful one, but it's also very expensive. But um, 
I do think it will change. I strongly believe if you can see somebody who looks like you and something that you love, you're definitely going to have a bigger chance to be able to not just have the passion, but to have the hard work and drive. Because you know, when you look up on the TV screen or on a stage, you see somebody who represents you. And that's the biggest thing. And I think that's what's going to be able to change it because we now really see more poppies around the world in uh, classical ballet. Um, and as far as now, do you see, I guess, what would be a, a change that you would make that kind of, cause I, I, I agree that seeing, you know, the Misty Copelands, the Michaela's, the Calvin's is only going to help. Uh, is there anything that you think, um, can be done more to kind of invigorate and kind of welcome people of color into the, into the, into dance? I think it's just accepting everybody. That's the thing. And sometimes, Maybe people think um, classical ballet is just for a certain group of people, but it's classical ballet for me is a way to express myself. So if you feel that as a young little girl who's um, watching a ballet video on your TV and you feel touched by it and you feel that this is something, this is my way of talking, because dancing is my way of talking. It's easier for me to do than do a speech. And I feel like there's a lot of, you know, different colored people out there who would also feel the same way if they saw somebody else who looked like them as well. So I think I I think people should just know that they should feel welcomed. And it also comes from teachers and things like that. If you're treating young dancers who come in who look differently, like they don't belong, then they will not continue. You don't want to do you don't always want to have to fight constantly to do something you love so much, especially if somebody is The global pandemic has shut down a great deal of entertainment. Stage performances worldwide remain shuttered. And for athletes who take great pains to stay in shape under normal circumstances, have had to pivot in more ways than one. I don't know if you've seen my Instagram, but I have a nice two meter by three meter floor in my living room and a ballet bar. So I'm able to either do classes, my company on Zoom, or I do classes from different um, ballerinas that I admire, like Ashley Bowder from uh, New York City Ballet has classes on YouTube. Um, English National Ballet has classes as well on YouTube. Um, There's different classes. I always like to uh, to do different ones and mix it up or do two classes in a row just to try to stay in shape as much as possible. But I also think this is such a great time to take care of my body and try to fix the injuries I've had. Um, especially like three years ago, I ruptured my uh, right Achilles tendon. Um, and that was very traumatic. And then a few months after, then I badly, badly sprained my left ankle, and it took a full year to also recover. So this is also a time to train, but to recover, and just to be nice to myself and say, you know, this you're doing the best you possibly can, and yeah, yeah. And about that Achilles injury, how how was the the rehab on that? Because I know for um, other uh, athletes, it's just it's it's a tremendous blow. Um, but how have you come back, and and how was that? For me, I it was horrible because um, I also had an issue with my the healing process. My stitches wouldn't close, so I ended up having to be a month longer into in my cast, which meant I really just completely lost all my calf muscle and uh, my whole all, my whole life lost this muscle, and so it was very difficult. Um, but I had a great team here; they're very helpful. Um, what I had a rehab teacher who's looked like it 
it was crazy that it felt like as if I was taking my first ballet class and it was very hard. It took a full year also to get the confidence and to mentally be okay with this situation is always the hardest part. And I think dancers, are, we want to be as perfect as possible. And when you've had a horrible injury like this, it's not going to be perfect. And you know what you can do. And when your body doesn't do it, it's it's very painful to, to watch. But I was able to fully recover. And I have, re- like, I never say really good things about myself, but I have really good jumps. Like, really, really, really high jumps. And so for me not to be able to jump high, it was... Yeah, it was as if I was losing part of myself because that is what makes me very different from other dancers is how high my jumps are and I couldn't do it for a full year. And once I was able to get back on stage and to have that confidence and just to be able to feel like I'm flying again in the studio, it was amazing. It was all worth it because as well, like it also gave me and a full opportunity um, that year to work with Warchild. I'm, a, I'm an ambassador with Warchild Holland, and I want to be able to help children who have whose lives have started like mine. So I was able to travel with them to Uganda and Lebanon, and I was supposed to go to Colombia with them this uh, summer as well to help children. And it just gives me an opportunity to figure out who Michaela was outside of ballet. Um, you've worked with Calvin before. How, how would you describe him? And is there anything you would you would say about about him? I think he is one of the most effortless dancers I've ever seen. Like whenever I would watch him on stage or in the studio, I just I idolize him. I think he's beautiful and he's so kind and so modest and just an elegant being. I think is how I would describe him. <laughs> elegant has a. It, an amazing laugh. Absolutely love his laugh and just such a sweetheart. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful dancer. Calvin Royal III is another dancer changing the face of modern ballet. His journey is as profound as his lines, and you'll meet him right after the break. Kelvin Royal III came to ballet relatively late in life, but his talents were evident right from the very start. He also has the distinction of being one half of the duo that became the first African-American couple to dance lead at the American Ballet Theater. His partner at the time was renowned dancer Misty Copeland. His grace on stage is undeniable, and due to an unrelenting dedication to his craft. I started dancing. My first introduction to dancing was when I was probably 10 or 11. Um, I did this community project called the Chocolate Nutcracker um, in my city in Florida. Um, I'm from the Tampa Bay area, and, um, you know, I had gotten introduced to jazz and hip-hop and West African dancing, and I think that was kind of like the time for me that I, I discovered that I, I just love to move, and I love music, and... Um, I auditioned for my high school of performing arts, um, and that's when I, you know, I got my first intro to ballet, and it wasn't one of those love it at, at first class 
situation for me, honestly. I, um, I had a lot of catching up to do. One, because I started ballet at 14, and for most um, professional ballet dancers, you know, they, you hear their stories, and they started when they were three and four years old. So, on the one hand, I had a lot of catching up to do, and I was going through puberty at the time, so um, it was it was definitely a big uh, shift for me. Um, I, I went away to the summer training program that most uh, young dancers do um, called a summer intensive, where you are surrounded by dancers from all over the country, and um, you're taking classes and uh, learning the ropes from some of the industry's best. Um, and so when I came back from that summer away, I realized that I had gotten much stronger and, and I wanted to kind of push myself and see how much further I could go with this. Um, and uh, I did this competition my junior year of high school. So that was three years or two and a half years after studying ballet. And um, I was... Uh, spotted by the principals of, of the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis School at American Ballet Theater, and I was scouted and brought to New York on full scholarship to train and study in New York City. So it was a pretty quick, I mean, like you said, you, you, you're going through puberty, your body was still kind of forming, and I know for, for athletes, you know, when you go through even just growth spurts and things, it takes a while for kind of the, the physical attributes to catch up and, and being able to perform. To catch up. Yeah, but it sounds like you kind of yeah. hit the ground running the next summer, it sounds like. Yeah, it was it was kind of crazy how, how fast it all happened. I mean, even by the, the time that I moved to New York and I was training in New York, I was still playing catch up, but it was kind of in an environment where I knew, you know, it, it, I suddenly went from being, a, you know, in a, in a smaller school in Florida to a big school in New York with, you know, 11 other dancers who have been chosen from, from all over the country. Um, so it was highly competitive, um, very... Um, I, I just realized that, that env- in that environment that I had to, to put in a thousand plus extra hours, um, even on my off time, uh, to, to catch up. And I was still looking, I was still figuring out the coordination and gaining the strength, um, to, to, to do ballet. I mean, ballet, uh, the thing about it is, you know, you go to performance and you see the beauty and the, the ease and, and it takes so much to get to that point. And what most people who aren't familiar with ballet, you know, it, it, it's not it's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> you know, we we work hard to make it look easy, but even even still, there's a lot of skill and elements of unknown. Anything can happen when you're out there in a live performance. Um, even in, in the training, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of work. And um, and yeah, I, I think at that point, you know, I was still growing and learning and and just trying to find my way with all of it. You have to love dancing if you want to make it in this game. Calvin walks us through an average day, often on his feet for more than seven hours, with little rest and little time to eat. It's, in a word, exhausting. 
Yes, so uh, we usually um, at ABT, uh, we usually have kind of two um, two scenarios where we're either in a rehearsal period where we're preparing for upcoming productions or our big seasons um, where we're, you know, we'll rehearse during the day and perform in the evening. So a typical day during a rehearsal period, um, you know, we always start our day with a company ballet class um, at uh, 10.15 every morning. Um, and that class is, you know, a series of bar exercises um, and center exercises and combinations that basically warm up uh, gradually in progression um, every single muscle in your body. Um, and that's kind of like our, our you know, that's, that's our food <laughs> in the morning. That's our breakfast. Um, that's kind of where we start uh, with the class. And then after the class, we have kind of a, a short break, 15 minutes or so, and that's Usually when I, I like to order my lunch, either go out and grab lunch nearby the studios or order in. Um, and then our day starts at noon when we hit the ground running with rehearsals every hour for about seven hours um, uh, straight. And, you know, we, we have five-minute breaks on, on every hour, um, but sometimes you can kind of go nonstop for an entire seven-hour period um, preparing roles and different ballets. So, you know, you could probably do up to five or six different uh, rehearsals in your one uh, rehearsal day. And um, and it's, it's, it's a challenge sometimes because, you know, you can go from one style to a completely different style and then have to, you know, switch gears, um, and uh, and so it's, it's a very intense, very rigorous day most of the time. Um, and then when we're in uh, a performance season, we start our day again with the class warming up, getting everything moving and, and ready for the day. Um, we'll have a five-hour uh, rehearsal period where we're doing stage rehearsals, run-throughs, um, Sometimes choreographers will come in and will be creating their their upcoming ballets. So it's, you know you're juggling so many different um, different hats throughout the day. And then uh, there's usually like an hour or so window where uh, it's kind of our dinner break or a late lunch break, uh, early dinner. Um, I'll I usually like to take a power nap, um, get up, eat something light, and then it starts. It's when I usually start to get ready for the performance, um, which usually opens at 7.30. And uh, it closes around 10 some, some nights, depending on the, the production. And then that's when I have my, my real dinner, <laughs> around 10, 10, 15, 10, 30. And I go to bed around midnight and then get up the next day and do it all over again. And our, our spring season is usually our biggest season. Um, which was uh, recently canceled. Um, but that's usually our season where we have a total of 64 shows, um, two shows on Wednesdays, two shows on Saturdays, and only Sundays uh, off. Missing a week or two of performances is huge to a dancer, 
let alone an entire season. And that's what this pandemic has done. In an instant, boom, a huge chunk of one's career is suddenly gone in a flash. The youth and talent of these performing arts is left now, merely to wait. Life with athletes, life with the Olympians, our, our, uh, our careers, um, in comparison to, you know, someone who can be on a computer or someone who can work remotely, um, it, we have a shorter window. Um, some dance longer than others, but um, we have such a short window and missing even one season, you know, being sidelined, not not only missing the performances of, during the season, but, you know, we're doing as best as we can in our homes and our living rooms and our kitchens uh, during during this time. But just to miss one season, it's, it's huge for us because, you know, that that time is so precious. And um, for many of us, I, you know, I talk to a lot of my friends who are, even myself, you know, finding this time to be really challenging some days because, you know, we, we're doing our best, but there's the, that uncertainty that we don't know when we'll be able to all assemble again in a studio and take class together or rehearse together. And um, that unknown, that level of uncertainty, um, it, it can it can drive us a little bit crazy <laughs> because we are so used to that social aspect and element being part of our our everyday lives and um and so missing a season missing that time to prepare um uh, and and rehearse and do it to our full capacity without limitation of space um is huge and I guess to that end too, where how how are you staying fit at home? How how are you finding ways to to kind of do? I guess it would be minimal training in the, within the confines of your home. Yeah. Um, and then also, how are yeah. you finding how are you finding the laughter? How are you keeping it, keeping the sanity together? <laughs> so, um, you know, in terms of my my personal uh, recovery, you know, I've I've been doing virtual physical therapy sessions with our, our, our physical therapist at ABT um, pretty much almost every day or every other day uh, for my ankle. Um, I'm, I've, you know, I'm not able to take a full class in my, my living room, so, you know, I do the exercises that I can. ABT has uh, partnered with Harlequin Floors, and they spent all of the dancers in the company um Marley flooring, which is like the the anti slip layer of floor that they usually put on top of the floor in a dance studio, um, to kind of help with you know the slipping and falling aspect of of dancing. So that um, you know that's been sent out, and and I have to unroll it soon and, and put it in my, in my living room. Um, but I'm also you know trying to uh, I, I've. I'm on Instagram a lot and I see a lot of people doing classes and personal training. And so I've been uh, following a couple of, of uh, personal trainers in New York uh, who will post exercises uh, or workouts. And I, I do that, you know, here in my living room too. So I've, I've just been kind of trying to dabble and do a little bit of everything that I, I can as much as I can. 
Um, and then there's some days where I just, I literally have to just kind of ride that wave of letting myself just relax too. <laughs> um, because that's part of, part of, uh, the conditioning process too. It's not all, it's always go, 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 but it's sometimes allowing myself to kind of rest and recover too. Um, and how I've been keeping it light, I mean, I, I try to, to connect with my family almost every day. Um, Zoom has been huge right now. I think I've Zoom called and had happy hours and, and uh, you know, things with friends more than I've ever done before. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of trying to stay connected and, and you know, not, not be in this alone, not go at it alone. So what's next? It's a question we all are wondering as we deal with a global pandemic that continues to keep us far from the normalcy we all took for granted. Royal urges us to simply keep on moving. It just, I mean, for me, because I'm so used to, to moving, moving, being on the move, um, and being in isolation, it's kind of hard to, to go out and be on the move like normal. Um, I would say to, to any and everyone, um, during this time of isolation and uncertainty and, um, it, it's so important to keep moving in some way. If that's keeping your mind moving by picking up a book or learning something new, um, even keeping your body moving, there's people online on YouTube, on Facebook and Instagram that are giving classes, are, you know, whether it be, uh, strength training or, or physical therapy or, you know, gyrotonics, um, it, I think at this time more than ever, we just got to keep it moving. We got to keep moving. The job is far from over. There's a lot of work to be done to make the stage more representative of the people that sit in the audience. Far more needs to be done to open the doors to children who might want to enter this life, but simply lack the means. I know you and Misty Copeland were, were kind of the first um, black leads, at, at least for ABT, to have to have leads last January. Um, how is mm -hmm. it kind of a, a prominent face uh, in the community um, and performing, you know, uh, to, to ballet audiences and, and, and being that kind of um, face of underrepresented communities, I guess? Um, can you speak to that a little I, bit? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, especially for the ballet, um, and, and for the world, I think it's important for us to, um, continue to show and, and, um, celebrate that, that diversity and that, that representation. I, being a black ballet dancer, male ballet dancer, um, it's very rare that you see that in, in some of the, the world's leading ballet, classical ballet companies. And for both Misty and I to be able to, to stand on the stage together and represent something that, you know, is bigger than ourselves in a way, um, I think uh, it will only create more opportunity. It will only create more um, more a feeling of possibility that, that, that is attainable and, um, 
and it's for me been a great um it's just been a great honor to to know that my hard work that I put in from the beginning has led me to this place of uh being able to not only represent for for our community but for the the generations to come and and i I just feel such a um I feel happy and proud about the ability to be able to stand in this position um, and hopefully continue to open the doors for, for more Calvins to come. Um, so I, I, I truly am grateful, and, and I just hope that it will just continue to be more brown faces at the ballet, to be more brown faces in, in spaces where there haven't been before that have earned that right and, and deserve to be there and to deserve to represent that. And um, and so yes, I think it's 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 very important that we just continue to to show that it is possible. It is possible. And do you see it it changing? Um, just in, in in kind of the short time you know you when you, since you were fourteen to to now, do you see more more kids, more more black and, and Latino kids getting into ballet? Um, or or and I do. No, I, I definitely do, and I, I feel like, you know, we, we, it, we've come so far, and yet we still have so much further to go. You know, it's not just about the dancers on the, on the stage. It's about the, the choreographers. It's about the people in, in positions of leadership. It's about, you know, uh, the people that, that make these productions happen, um, especially in the ballet. Uh, but I, I, I have seen that, you know, things are changing, um, and hopefully there will be more Misty's and more Calvin's um, in, in ballet companies across across the U.S. and across the world. Um, so I, I, I definitely see the change happening. The Enfuego Podcast is edited by Dylan Wren. I'm your host, Gabe Zaldivar. If you like the show, you can help support it in a tremendous way by liking, following, and subscribing across your favorite streaming services. Give a comment or a five-star rating. With your support, you're helping give some of sports' greatest stories the spotlight they deserve. Next week, we do just that. Jaime Harin is the Dodgers' Spanish-language play-by-play man, and he's been doing it since 1959. He's now joined in the booth by his son, Jorge. His grandson, Stefan, was once drafted by the Dodgers. The Harins are a Dodgers legacy and a Southern California institution. We'll meet the family and find out what it's like to grow up bleeding blue.